Let's take just a moment in prayer before the message. Great things you have done for us, gracious Father, our salvation in Christ Jesus. We pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are moved and transformed and renewed by your word so that we are filled evermore in Christ Jesus, clinging to him throughout it all. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, for quite a few years, almost 20 years, I have done something called a values priority exercise. I first uh, learned about it from actually leading a workshop from a company called Franklin Covey. And I've done it with groups, I've done it with individuals, and actually it's worked really well for both premarital and marriage counseling, values priority. So it goes something like this. Uh, brainstorm on one sheet of paper all the things that are important to you, that you really value. It could be family, friends, travel. I mean, I've heard a lot of things throughout the years. Just take a piece of paper, write everything down, and then narrow it down to your top ten. Then take 10 post-it notes and write one of your values on each of the post-it notes. Okay, so now you've got 10 values, one on each post-it note. Now imagine, you are going to take a luxury cruise, first class, the best in the world, and you're there eating a wonderful meal, first-class meal. Everybody's just decked out, really fancy. And in the middle of the meal, you feel the ship shake a little bit. It's, it's not bad, but a little bit. And the captain comes out and says, no worries, the ship is very safe. Oh, did I mention it's the Titanic? Yeah, okay. Anyway, so you're on this ship, it's shaking a little bit. The captain says, everything's fine, plenty of lifeboats, but just to make sure, you gotta leave three pieces of luggage behind. Well, it turns out that your luggage are these values, and so you now have to take three of those values, those post-it notes, and rip them up. It sounds kind of easy, but it's a little hard to do. So you rip them up, and then again, the ship is getting a little worse, captain comes out, okay, now three more. So now you've got to tear up three more, and now you're only left with four of the values, and you keep working your way down until you just have one post-it note left, one value. And you would say that this value is so important, I would rather die than not take it with me. That's the exercise. It's a good exercise to do. See, what do you hold most precious in your life that you would rather die than let go of? And then you also have to ask, well, are my priorities, are, are, you know, are the things that I do in my life centered around what is most important in my life? See, these questions really get to the heart of what we're going to be covering this week and next week. This week is really about what do you hold most precious and dear in your life? And actually, I have a little phrase here that... I'd like to have it echo in your heart, uh, a song almost, as it were, that resonates through your soul. And it is very simply this, nothing in myself I bring, only 
to the cross I cling. That's the essence of what we're covering this morning. Nothing in myself I bring only to the cross I cling. So, with joy in our hearts, let us dive in to God's Word. We start chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul continues with his letter, right? And he comes back to this theme again and again. It's not that long a letter, four chapters. But he comes back to either joy or rejoicing again and again. In uh, the letter, he uses the word joy five times and rejoicing eight times. There's joy in prayer, in faith, of being in same mind with others in the gospel, rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed. And you see, what we find out that at the very heart of Paul's joy is the Lord. That is his joy. It is in the Lord and the Lord alone. See, a lot of us rejoice with the circumstances in our life, right? We get the job, we rejoice. We get married, we rejoice. And by the way, we get married, we should rejoice. We get a job, we should rejoice. But it seems that our joy, our rejoicing, is based on the circumstances which can ebb and flow. But we, we need to focus on the Lord. See, Paul's joy wasn't based on his circumstances. Paul's joy was based on the Lord. Because he knows that the Lord is sufficient. The Lord is enough. That's why I often start off our worship with Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, not because of the circumstances in our life, but because of the Lord. So Paul writes this, chapter 3, verse 1, and then at the very end, he says, and it is safe for you, which is a kind of an odd phrase, isn't it? It is safe for you. Uh, a, a better way to think about this is that it is a safeguard for you. See, Paul is not just a theologian. He's not just an apostle. He's a shepherd. And he's the one who wants to protect the flock, the people who are under his care. And so he is ever watchful. And he says, you know, if you rejoice in the Lord and him alone, that's where you find your safety. Because he goes on here. He says... Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now notice in the scripture, in a very short time, he says, look out, look out, look out. A trifold use of that phrase, look out. And when scripture uses something three times in a row, we should pay attention to it. Now, I think perhaps to our ear, a better word might be beware. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is emphatic in this, isn't he? 
He's saying, for your own safety, beware of this. So who is he talking about? Who are the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh? Well, Paul is writing about the people who say that to be saved, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, you must be circumcised. You see, circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. It was given to Abraham, and then it was given to the rest of Israel. And Moses, in the law, commanded it. You find this again in Leviticus. And so thus, Jews, Israelites, throughout the centuries and to this day, adhere to circumcision because it is from the Old Covenant. It is a command of the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, we have to ask, is that command still enforced? Should we still say, you must be circumcised to be a Christian? Now, for you and I today, this sounds like kind of a weird thing, but in the early church, it was a big point of discussion because there were people who said, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. I would encourage you to uh, do some cross-referencing. So here, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all of that, but I'm going to read verse 1 and then 7 through 11. So you get the idea of what's going on. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, You cannot be saved. Verse 7, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter says, do they need to be circumcised for their salvation? And he says, no. As a matter of fact, if you make that, if you add that to God's grace, you are placing a yoke on them. All right. It is the yoke of the law. It is the yoke of the law. When you take the gospel and then you add something to it, you make it a yoke and you displace the gospel. Because, let us be very clear, the law does not save you. The law by itself does not save you. The law only points you to the gospel. And if you add something to that, 
you are nullifying the grace of the gospel. I hope you can see how important of distinction this is. Now, you might say, oh, come on, does, does that happen today? Do people still place a burden on other people for their salvation? And the, the answer is yes. There's many, many examples that I could give. Let me just give you two. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. By the way, they are not Christian. They are outside of Christianity. And they are not grace-based. They are works-based or works-righteousness. Let me give you an example from the Book of Mormon. It says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Now, a lot of that sounds pretty good, right? But it's that little phrase, after all we can do. Yes, we are saved by grace, but first we have to do all the work, then God will just take us across the finish line. That's not grace. That is by your own merits and then the merits of Christ Jesus. That's not grace. Now, what about Jehovah's Witnesses? And by the way, there's a lot more regarding Mormonism, uh, I'm not going to go into that this morning, but there's a lot more that would point to works righteousness. Okay, so what about Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, first of all, I don't know if you know, but uh, heaven's already full. They say the 144,000 have already been picked, so you don't get heaven. But if you're good enough, you can at least uh, be on the new earth. Okay, so how can you be good enough? Well, there's four things at least You have to have the prayer, obey God's law, joining God's only organization, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you're not a Jehovah's Witness, then you have no promise. And you basically have to be uh, loyal by advocating the kingdom of God, not Jesus, but the kingdom of God. And uh, so that's why they go door-to-door preaching. Now, those are just two examples. Are there other examples in different religions? Yeah, there are myriad and myriad. None of the other religions are grace-based. Does it happen in the Christian church? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it does too. And I'm just going to give you one example this morning. It's with the charismatic or Pentecostals. Some of them say that unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. So they place a burden that's not even in the law. They place a burden on you. Unless unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. And I've read stories about people who have faked speaking in tongues so they could be saved. What does Paul call all of these people? He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. These are not my words. These are Paul's words, and they are strong, strong words. If you put the emphasis on the outward, you put a yoke on you. Let's be very clear about this. The law says, do this, but you can't. You can't fulfill the law. The gospel says it has all been done for you. The gospel has the freedom, brothers and sisters. 
This is what Jesus was talking about in, the, in Matthew chapter 11. And you know this one, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, that, bur that yoke of the law, uh, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the law will just wear you down. But the yoke of the gospel is light and frees you in Christ Jesus. So this is what Paul is writing about. And so when we rejoice in the Lord and everything that the Lord has done, we are safeguarded. And Paul then goes on to say, we worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on, verse 4, though I, might, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You know, let me ask you, have you ever come across a person who simply demands your respect because of their pedigree or their accomplishments? Have you ever run across a person like that? You know, sometimes what you do in people who have gone to the Ivy League schools, you can find that attitude among them. They, because they've gone to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or whatever, they should automatically have respect. So last month in June, Heidi, uh, Heidi and I, my wife, Heidi and I, uh, had the unfortunate experience of dealing with a doctor who demanded respect because he had gone to Harvard and he knew better. And uh, the way he came off we have very little respect for him and for his abilities. We also knew, because Heidi knows her body really well, that his diagnosis was way off. But he would not listen to her because he was the doctor and he had gone to Harvard. Now, it's not just doctors. It is academics. A lot of times, academics will list their credentials. Even theologians, too. Some theologians who've gone to some of these schools. Uh, by the way, some of those schools have the worst theology around. So just because they have a certain pedigree, certain accomplishments, really almost counts for nothing in some regards. Now, what about Paul? Paul. Paul lists both his pedigree and his accomplishments. He said his pedigree, he was circumcised on the eighth day. So that is uh, according to the law of Moses, right? So he started off 
perfectly well, circumcised on the eighth day. He was uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that's what he was born into. But now he accomplished things too. It says, as to the law of Pharisee. So a Pharisee observing not only the law, but also the uh, oral traditions. He said, I was a, a Pharisee to the greatest degree as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he was trying to rid the church of this Christian uprising, this Christian cult that was defiling Israel. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he is saying, look, no one can hold a candle to me. No one. I've got my pedigree. I've got my accomplishments. If I had reason to have confidence in all of that, I should have confidence above everybody else. But, but, he says, and this is critical, he puts absolutely no confidence in any of that for his salvation. None. None. Absolutely none. Going back to verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paraphrasing, I put no confidence in every, anything that I have done, anything that I have ever accomplished. Nothing of this world, no outward forms do I bring. What I put confidence in is worshiping God in spirit and glorifying Christ Jesus. Period. That's my confidence. And that's the only confidence I have. Remember that post-it note exercise I was talking about? Paul says, it's Christ Jesus. Glorifying him, worshiping God in spirit. Nothing else but the cross of Christ matters. So let's continue on. He expands on this now. Verse 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I recall visiting a church in the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area quite a few years ago. I, I don't remember how many years. I don't even remember the name of the church. But I remember after worship, we went and uh, in the fellowship area and we had some, you know, some donuts and coffee or something like that. And there was a woman there 
She was in her mm, mid-late 60s, maybe early 70s even. And we got to talking a little bit. And she said she had studied under Martha Graham. Now, for those of you who don't know, Martha Graham uh, was modern dance. She was the focal point of the past century's modern dance movement. As a matter of fact, it's the Martha Graham technique, which is still even taught to this day. To give you an idea, Michelangelo is to sculpture, right? Rembrandt is to the old world painting. Uh, Maybe this century, Pavarotti is to opera. Picasso is to modern art. Martha Graham is to modern dance. That's the level that she had attained and that this woman I was talking to had not only studied in her, I think she might have also even toured with her. The cream of the cream, top of the top. And I said, wow, that must have been wonderful. And her response really made an impression. She said, I count it all as loss. It was but filthy rags. She, in essence, was quoting Paul. You see, in the arts world, there's a lot of self-idolatry, narcissism. You, you, you know this. I mean, just read any of the things that some of the people in the arts are doing, and it is, you, you know, it is all about self-idolatry. And this woman, who had studied under the cream of the crop, counted it all as loss. It's but filthy rags. Because now she was in Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior. This is what Paul is writing about here. He says, anything that I could be proud of, a a Pharisee, a Hebrew, an Israelite, none of that mattered. It's all rubbish. It's all loss. For him, everything outside of Christ Jesus was a loss because there's nothing else that compares to Christ Jesus. You see, this is critical. If he said, yes, it's all for Christ Jesus, but I'm still going to say, well, it was because I was a Pharisee. It was because I was a Hebrew. He said, no, none of that counts. Because if I add to that, I'm adding to the grace of Christ, and thus I nullify the grace of Christ. Thus I nullify the gospel. Because it is through grace alone that I am saved. Nothing that I bring. Look, I went to seminary. I studied hard. I got good grades. Does that count for anything? No. It doesn't count as anything for my salvation. I can't hold that up for my salvation. Well, I'm a pastor now. Certainly, as a pastor who has gone to seminary, that must even count for a little bit more, right? I must be a a little bit more saved than other people. And the answer is no. I bring nothing to the table 
of my salvation. Nothing. It's all a gift from God. And the only thing I can do with that gift is receive it. To cling to the gift that has been given me. That there's nothing good in me worth saving. But it's all a gift. It's all grace. If we could take that to heart and live that, there would be rejoicing in the Lord always. Now, at the very end of our reading today, Paul says something, though, that's a little bit different, and I want to flesh this out a little bit. He says that he may share in his sufferings. Here, I've got the verse here for you. That may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this might seem a little bit different. It might seem that it would just contradict everything we've just been talking about, that you're saved by grace. Is Paul saying that he is now going to work to be saved, that he can attain his salvation? And the answer is no. No. When we take a look at Scripture, it is by grace. What he's really talking about here is we are to die to sin and live to Christ. So this is not justification. This is our sanctification. Cross-referencing Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 11. I'm going to read uh, all the verses here. I would encourage you to cross-reference. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, that we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to flesh this out a little bit more next week, which is really a, about the life, living that life of sanctified life, pursuing Christ Jesus, who is our priority above all things. Very simply, let's go back to the heart of it. Nothing in myself I bring, only to the cross I cling. All right, for you, this morning, as you read through, as you soak in God's word, a couple of things for you to consider for yourself. 
What are the things or accomplishments in your life that you put confidence in? Would you be willing to count it all as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus? It's a tough question. And is our Lord Jesus and his gospel sufficient for your rejoicing, no matter the circumstances? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace you have given us through your death and resurrection and the life we have, which is only possible in you. Continue to guide us and work in us so that you and you alone are our all in all. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.